The video shows a man sitting on an aeroplane talking to a person just off camera. He has short black hair with a thick black beard. Over his blue polo shirt, he's wearing black body armor and he's handcuffed. His name is Daniel Barrera, otherwise known as El Loco. He was a wanted drug trafficker who'd been captured in Venezuela and was being flown back to Colombia. The airplane's up in the air because you can hear the engine, so this makes it hard to hear what Barrera is saying, but you can just make it out. He's saying things like, that guy doesn't deserve a chance. He's killed children over nothing. He's very dangerous. And over and over, he says, the guy's an animal. He's an animal. The person he's talking about is a man known as Otoniel, the leader of one of the biggest criminal organizations in Colombia, Clan del Golfo. After Barrera's arrest in 2012, the president of Colombia at the time, Juan Manuel Santos, said that the last of the great capos has fallen. De los grandes capos. Fue capturado en San Cristóbal, Venezuela, alias El Loco Barrera. But what El Loco was trying to tell police officers on that plane is that something much darker had emerged out of the jungles in the north. This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel. Part one, he's an animal. If you look at a map of the Americas, there's a small thread of land that connects Central America to South America. That's the small nation of Panama, just across the border to the south lies Colombia and the region known as Uraba, the Promised Land. Covered in thick jungle and famed for bananas, it's also in the enviable position of having coastline on both the Caribbean and Pacific Ocean. And it was Uraba in 1971 where Dairo Antonio Usaga was born. And here, over 30 years later, Clan del Golfo began. Although we know very little about his early life, in this episode I wanted to give you an idea about who Dairo Antonio Usaga was, and how he came to lead and shape one of the largest criminal organizations in Colombia. But first things first, he's widely known by his alias, Otoniel, so for clarity we'll use that name during these episodes. Now, we have to tell two stories here to understand how Otoniel became the person he did. And I should warn you, there are quite a few acronyms and abbreviations coming up, but we'll whittle them down as we're going along, and I'll try to go through this quick. So let's go back to Colombia during the 70s and 80s. The country was in the midst of a guerrilla war with a number of armed factions, the EPL, M19, ELN, and of course, the FARC. All of these groups were fighting with the Colombian state. Meanwhile, during the same period, we begin to see the rise of the infamous Medellin and Cali cartels, a story well covered and well known. For the young Otoniel and his elder brother Giovanni, it was the Popular Liberation Army, or EPL, who captured their attention. 
and it was within the EPL where the brothers learned how to fight and how the drug trade operated. According to the Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, the EPL openly used the drug trade to finance its operations in an attempt to achieve its goal of protecting the proletariat from government influence. In 1991, the EPL was demobilized, leaving the 19-year-old Otoniel and his brother to find a new place in the world. Eventually, they would land in an organization called the ACCU. So, let's leave the Usaga brothers in the ACCU and turn to a group well known by anyone who is a fan of the Netflix series Narcos, and that's Los Pepes. Now, Los Pepes, which stood for People Persecuted by Pablo Escobar, were a right-wing paramilitary group run by the Castaño brothers, once members of the Medellin cartel, and a drug trafficker known as Don Berna. Financed by the enemies of Escobar, Los Pepes worked alongside Search Block, the Colombian police unit tasked with hunting Escobar. Escobar was eventually killed in 1993 after a gunfight with Search Block. But what of Los Pepes? Well, it was disbanded. Don Berner took over the office of Envigado, the once debt collection agency for the Medellin cartel. Then, according to Insight Crime, who've written extensively on this, other leading members of Los Pepes, like the remaining Castaño brothers, formed an organization known as the Peasant Self-Defense Forces of Colombia and Uruba, the ACCU, the same organization that Otoniel and his brother Giovanni eventually joined. This paramilitary group soon joined others to create a federation called the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, the AUC, an extremely violent right-wing paramilitary who used the conflict with the FARC in Colombia to mask their own illicit operations. Otoniel and Giovanni worked under a man known as Don Mario, the group's finance chief. Okay, so stay with me, we're nearly there. The AUC and FARC battled it out over the years, and the brutality of the attacks carried out by the AUC and their involvement in drug trafficking meant that they were designated a terrorist organization by the United States in 2002. The writing was on the wall. Three years later, in 2005, the AUC was no more, and over 30,000 paramilitaries were demobilized. These are armed organizations, paramilitary organizations, men and women in uniform, heavily armed. So in the time of Pablo Escobar, you might be talking about a killer for hire who has a silencer, who has a revolver. The Gulf Clan, these are men and women who walk around, mainly men, but there are some women with AK-47s. They're dressed in uniform. They pretend to have a political ideology, but really they're focused on the production and the exporting of cocaine. This is Toby Muse, foreign correspondent, documentary filmmaker, and author of the book Kilo, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels. The origins of the Gulf Clan itself come out of a failed peace process, which was between the Colombian government in around 2005 and the far-right paramilitary organization. This organization had been created by wealthy landowners often working with drug lords who had relocated to the countryside, as well as parts of the army, to create these illegal groups that would go after 
Marxist rebels, in particular the FARC, known as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the ELN, the National Liberation Army, these Marxist insurgent groups. The far-right paramilitaries were created in order to carry out a dirty war. The philosophy behind this being at the beginning that the Colombian state couldn't conduct the war the way that the war needed to be conducted, which is a campaigns of terror, carrying out massacres in a town of 20, 25 people using chainsaws, using machetes, with the idea of spreading terror in order to warn people away from supporting the insurgency. So this group really was uh, terrified Colombia for around two decades, the far-right paramilitaries. They're extremely successful, I should say, by the way, in severing the link between these Marxist insurgent groups and their civilian base. After the 2005 demobilization, these paramilitaries, who'd been carrying out a violent war against groups like the FARC and the ELN, were suddenly told to stop. Lay down their weapons, don't commit any more crimes, and go home. And that included Otoniel and his brother, Giovanni. They've been in the far-right paramilitary movement. They're essentially just sent home. Well, these men, all they know how to do is kill and traffic drugs. So they're sent home with a promise that they're never going to do it again. Well, now they're sitting around in their impoverished part of Colombia, a place called Urava. And they say, well, you know, I mean, what are we doing here? You know, what am I supposed to do now? Start delivering milk? Am I going to become a postman? No, these men are, are made to kill. They're made to traffic. So they go home and they take all of those skills that they had learned and all of that knowledge that they had learned in the far-right paramilitary movement and they start to adapt it to producing and exporting cocaine. The group has become known as Clan del Golfo but also go by other names like the Urabenos or the AGC. And from its base in Uraba, the clan with its violent paramilitary background expanded across the country, bringing the violence that these groups were infamous for along with them. It evolved through a more kind of kingpin familiar group in which the Usuga, which was the, the last name of Otoniel, huge family from the Gulf, uh, Durawa. This is Jorge Mantilla, the director of conflict dynamics and organized violence at the Ideas for Peace Foundation and a member of the GI network. So they are came from the heritage of these paramilitary groups back in the 1990s and the, the first decade of, of the 2000s. And they kind of oscillate between a militia, more political, with a narrative, you know, with a will to become kind of an army with a manifesto and all these kind of more ideological signatures. And also another phase of it is more strictly criminal, dedicated to the drug market and exportation of cocaine to, to Mexico and other countries. So they, through that process, they have been gaining territory, people, and most importantly, the capacity to provide public goods such as justice, security, and to govern some zones in Colombia. Clan del Golfo was one of a number of criminal groups formed after the disbanding of right-wing paramilitaries. These groups were collectively known as BACCRIM, or Bandas Criminales, 
which basically means criminal gangs. And they became involved in and battled over all manner of illicit markets, and we'll come on to some of those in the next episode. The paramilitary background of the leading members of Clan del Golfo means that the structure of the organization is very different, and it evolved differently from the hierarchical structures of the FARC. So this kind of hybrid identity between a criminal group and more a militia with ideological narrative has become into a type of organization that works more in a kind of network for structure, formation. We have a hardcore kind of group in this region called El Golfo. That's why it's called Golf Clan. Uh, but then in other parts of the country, it's more loose, the organization. is not that well organized. Uh, hierarchies are not that clear in some, for example, urban context, they perform subcontracting other lower or not that big groups and they kind of negotiate and bargain with local groups, delinquency, gangs, wherever they are, they're going to try to negotiate, cooptate, or if not, then gain the territory to the means of violence. The core group at the center, the Estado Mea, or Board of Directors, still retained that paramilitary narrative. As the group expanded, it incorporated smaller groups into its fluid structure, operating a sort of franchise system, the power of the brand. The Clan del Golfo is like a, the meeting of different groups that were creating in the like in different territories and they get federated into this big umbrella called Clan del Golf. Angela Oyaya is the co-founder and senior researcher at the Conflict Responses Foundation in Colombia. So the relationship is completely different with the, their members, especially because the Clan del Golfo members have a lot of more autonomy, they, uh, the, the relationship pass through the idea to be paid for in some areas or to pay to be part of the Clan del Golfo, but with the guerrilla was very different. Another major difference between the FARC and Clan del Golfo was how involved they were in drug trafficking. Apparently one of the groups was more hands-on than the other. And the other element that I did name was the drug trafficking the FARC relationship with the drug trafficking, at least what they have been told to the justice, is that they were controlling the areas where the drug trafficking passed through. And it means that they ask for extortions to pass through, but they don't control the routes or they don't control the laboratories or the, the main activities of the drug trafficking. In the other side, the Clan del Golfo controlled the, the whole activity in very specific areas. One of them is the Bajo Cauca Antioqueño is located in the northwestern of Colombia and it's an area that is traditionally no known because of the, the coca crops but also the laboratories and the possibility to have different routes through the Caribbean, through the Pacific, or through the connection to Venezuela to export the drugs. 
And that's, I think that's a very important difference. You see, from the very start, Clan del Golfo was heavily involved in drug trafficking in the regions already under control and the drug routes that passed through. Don Mario taxed traffickers $400 per kilo of cocaine. And given the amount of cocaine being shipped north at that point, it's estimated that Don Mario was earning around 20 million US dollars a month. But as Toby says in his book, cocaine likes her jokes. Because this level of wealth made him a government target, Don Mario had been in charge for around two years before he was captured in 2009. Now, it's important to note here that beyond drug trafficking, regular listeners to Deep Dive will have heard this before, but organised crime groups aren't monolithic. The notion of a solely drug trafficking organisation has passed. These days, hybrid paramilitary organised crime groups like Clan del Golfo are pragmatic. They go where there is money, whether it's illicit or licit. Here's Jorge Mantilla again. Wherever they go, they will get involved in any economy they can. It can be illicit economy, it can be legal economies. And I think that the main business today in terms of organized crime in Colombia and more so in Latin America is about governing, creating arrangements, creating rules. This is related to extortion. This is related to mining. This is related to public space, regulating public space, regulating transportation, regulating commerce. So, of course, there's drug trafficking, but there's also human trafficking. There's also arms trafficking. So every activity they can control, and the businesses control territory, control populations, they're going to, you know, get profit out of it. After the capture of Don Mario, it was time for Giovanni and Otoniel to make their move. And under the new leadership of Giovanni, Otoniel and their trusted board of directors, all former paramilitaries, the expansion for the clan truly began. Here's Toby Muse. The Gulf clan will quickly become the largest cocaine trafficking organization in South America. And it has this very, very dark and violent reputation that this is a a criminal organization that has managed to move in on other criminal organizations, for instance, in the city of Medellin, which has long been the kind of jewel in the crown of drug traffickers in Colombia to control that city because it gives you so much, um, so much an ability to make money, whether it be from prostitution, whether it be from extortion, drug trade. The Gulf Clan was able to move in on the remnants of Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel, now called the Office of Envigado, and that set off a drug war within Medellin as the Gulf Clan moved in. That drug war was stopped at some point, and now there continues to be this uneasy truce in Medellin. Some parts of the city are controlled by the Office of Envigado, some parts are still controlled by the Gulf Clan. In Medellin, there was a power struggle within the Office of Envigado and Clan del Golfo supported one side in exchange for new international cocaine connections, which significantly broadened their horizons. Within a year, according to Jeremy McDermott from Inside Crime and the GI Network, 
they controlled most of the main routes from Medellin north to the Caribbean. They had become one of the top three backrim in the country. But at this point, a backrim known as Rastrojos were the most powerful. We won't go into them much in this, but at the time, their influence extended across much of Colombia. They were heavily involved in drug trafficking, and they worked closely with a man we've met before in this podcast, right at the very beginning, Daniel El Loco Barrera. Definitivamente no hay lugar seguro para los criminales. Esa es la gran lección que dejó esta semana la captura de Daniel El Loco Barrera después de 20 años de actividad criminal. We're now in 2012, and the Rastrojo, the rivals to Clan del Golfo, disintegrated quickly after the leaders either handed themselves into authorities or were captured. It was at this time in September 2012 that Barrera had that now infamous flight back from Venezuela, handcuffed and issuing a warning about Otoniel. That flight in which he called Otoniel an animal Barrera also said that unless the police capture him, hundreds more people will die. Now, we'll tackle this in greater detail in the next episode, but Clan del Golfo used violence and assassinations to maintain their control. A perfect example of this came from a 2013 report by Human Rights Watch, where they printed a death threat that was sent to the Uruba office of Tierra y Vida, an association of internally displaced people seeking land restitution. In this letter, they declared that Tierra y Vida leaders were, and I quote, military targets. It's interesting to hear the military language being used to defend their criminal activities. In that same report, it was said that the groups spread abuses against civilians, such as massacres, killings and forced displacement. Absolutely. And this is what I'm, this is the point about this new evolution in these cocaine trafficking organizations. They're heavily influenced by military thinking, by insurgency thinking. They've kind of taken all of this lessons that political insurgents, militias, guerrilla groups have acquired over the decades, and they're now applying it to drug trafficking. The Gulf Clan is taking all of this kind of military strategizing and applying it to how to run this militia. So yeah, it was an act of war. It was, we control this territory. This is a show of power, which is very different from the way that drug traffickers have sought over the past 20 years to lower in Colombia their profile. When you see in the drug traffickers I've met and interviewed in my book, that was the constant game for them. They don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper. They believe that their life is going to extend longer if they can go under the radar. The Gulf clan was saying, we are claiming this territory, we are here, you will respect us. The arrest of Barrera and the collapse of the Rastrojos left a huge hole in the drug trafficking environment, a space that the aggressive expansionist Clan del Golfo happily filled. They swallowed up territory, strategic ports like Buenaventura, where huge cocaine shipments regularly set out from, but they also swallowed up other backroom groups, and those who refused to join were killed. In around three years, Giovanni had changed Clan del Golfo from a small paramilitary organized crime group hybrid to the largest criminal group in Colombia. But like Don Mario before, Giovanni's success meant that he had a target on his back. And that brings us to our final story in this episode. This is a podcast about Otoniel, but we've been hearing a lot about his brother here as well, Giovanni. So what happened to him? I'll let Toby 
tell this part? So Giovanni is, I think, the kind of charismatic leader of this. But there's also something that's one of the very distasteful parts of this organization is right from the leadership, there has been this culture of grooming and having sex with underage girls. So Giovanni had that vice. Otoniel, his brother, also did it. But it was also something that the underlings were also involved in. They loved girls who were between the ages of 12 and 15. They would pay families for these girls. And there's reports that in this area where they live, where they controlled, which is a zone called Uraba, which is right close to the border with Panama, this kind of very lawless jungle region, a very impoverished. There are reports that families would bring their girls to the brothers and say, look, you know, will you give us any money if we let our daughter spend the weekend with you? So so it just shows this kind of almost feudal, complete breakdown. And, you know, where's law and order? Where's anybody to defend these women, these girls at this point? Just nowhere to be seen. It's just, I mean, it's truly awful. It's aspects such as this, along with the extreme propensity for violence, that Barrera was talking about to the police on that helicopter. In 2015, Colombian police intercepted phone calls from a 23-year-old human trafficker, a woman known as Paula. And she was talking about virgin girls she had recruited and groomed to serve as sex slaves for the leaders of Clan del Golfo including her own 11-year-old sister. This audio was then published by La Samana magazine in Colombia. Paolo would hang around schools in Uraba, preying on the vulnerable girls between the age of 11 and 16. She was just one of many in this network of human trafficking and sexual abuse. But this despicable characteristic of the leadership, combined with the bravery of one of those underage sexual abuse victims, led to Giovanni's downfall. Giovanni leads this organization and the police are actually able to turn into an informant one underage girl he had raped in the past. So what happens is as the clan, as these brothers, the leadership of this organization are celebrating somewhere in the jungle, the New Year's Eve of 2012, the police have been able to trace them there due to the work of this girl. The police storm the party giovanni shouts out that you know you'll never take me and uh, there's a shootout with the police and you know he, he, he's he's killed tras media hora de enfrentamientos fue abatido juan de dios usuga david alias giovanni máximo cabecilla de los urabeños en la finca donde se otoniel is able to get away and that's really when otoniel takes over Okay, Giovanni is dead, and his brother Otoniel is now the sole leader of Clan del Golfo. What's his first action? How does he respond to the death of his brother? A show of strength? Well, they declare an armed strike. And Toby was there during one of these. The Golf clan decide to make a stand and show they are not to be messed around with. They declare what's called an armed strike, but strike as in... Not so much as a hit, but it's like an industrial action. Imagine that in terms of strike. They say it's an armed strike. They say no one 
can be on the streets. No one can open up a business. No one can even drive around in the territory we control. This is in to commemorate and as an act of respect for Giovanni, who had just been killed by the police. So you saw all of these towns across the northern coast, and especially in that region of Uruba, ghost towns for a day. And it was a way of this organization showing its strength. And it was defying the Colombian state. It said, we are your new enemy. You have scored a blow against us, but look at our power. So over the history of the Gulf clan from about 2012 on, they would periodically declare these armed strikes. And part of the armed strike would also be that they would say, we'll pay $300 for whoever kills us a policeman on these days. So it was a really an echo back to the days of Pablo Escobar when he had a standing offer. Whoever killed a policeman, just stop by. As long as you provide evidence, we'll pay you some money. And this is how the Gulf clan really becomes front page news in Colombia. Everybody now understands, wow, there's a new huge cartel operating in this country, a new group to be afraid of. This armed strike was a show of force by Otoniel, but he was now known. And like his brother Giovanni and Don Mario before him, as leaders of one of the most powerful criminal organizations in the country, the target had now shifted and was aimed squarely at him. When researching this podcast, I found it fascinating to consider the political psychology behind Otoniel and Clan del Golfo, which stems completely from their paramilitary background. And it made me ask the question, given the clear criminality the group is involved in, did the likes of Otoniel believe they were still fighting a political battle? And so I put this question to Angela. Yeah, I think he truly believed that. Because you say this background that he has, even though the background not just coming from the paramilitaries, it comes from another guerrilla that we had a long time ago, that it was called EPL. And the EPL, they demobilized in the nineteen basically, and he was recycled for the paramilitaries. And in this recycle, he was part of one DDR process. It means that this DDR failed, basically, to keep him into the legality. And it means also that he didn't saw the plenty of the opportunities. He comes from a very rural area in the Urabá, coast that is like the mix between the Pacific and the Caribbean that is next to Panama. He comes from this area. And this area, if you go there, you can see how these structural problems are still going on. So I think he still believes in, in, in his mind that obviously, as you say, this is a clearly a criminal component with the drug trafficking. But in his mind was something like that's what's going on. That is what what the opportunities are for me. So I'm going to take them. So in the next episode, we will explore some of the illicit markets that Clan del Golfo are involved in. Of course, you've heard that they're involved in lots of different ones, so we're going to focus on one in particular. 
and that's the illegal mining of that very commodity that has been an obsession for humanity for thousands of years, gold. Gold is very, very, very important. It's not important, it's very, very, very important for, for any criminal organization. Just put it in numbers. Uh, Colombia produced, we estimate, at 86% of the gold that is exported to other countries, mostly the United States and Arab countries and Europe. It doesn't have a legal track. We'll look at how gold is used to launder drug money for Clandel Golfo and how they spread fear through the use of assassinations and violence on local communities. And then the constant game of cat and mouse with authorities who are rooting out mining machinery in the depths of the jungle. And of course, we've reached the point in the story where Otoniel is in sole control of Clandel Golfo. He'd shown his hand through the armed strike and will chart the state response as they launched the largest manhunt in Colombia's history, Operation Agamemnon. So through the last five years, there was a huge military deployment, occupation of these territories. They were not able to capture Otoniel for different reasons, maybe corruption, information leaks, but throughout the process, they start hitting the main structure of this Clan del Golfo. And as the net begins to close in, Otoniel appeals to an unlikely figure. Otoniel then, in around, uh, I think it's 2017, puts out these videos where he's standing and talking straight to the government in one of the videos, and he says, I want to negotiate a surrender. He puts out another video addressed to the Pope saying, please help us uh, negotiate with the government this surrender. That's it for part one of Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel. I hope you enjoyed this first episode. Part two will be available in a couple of weeks. I'd like to thank Jorge Mantilla, Angela Oyayo, and Toby Muse. Please could you rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. You could even share it around. For other podcasts, videos, or research into global organized crime, head over to the Global Initiative website, globalinitiative.net, where you can find loads of stuff to get your teeth into. We're also across social media. Just search for The Global Initiative and you'll find us. Thanks again for listening to Deep Dive from The Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. Thank you.